Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Over 400 years, and so when you live in a culture, there's a tendency to take on some of that culture and to... Uh, appropriate that. And you remember that when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the the law, uh, and he comes down, he finds the people uh, he finds the people at play. He finds them uh, worshiping through the golden calf. And what that was was they were taking they were taking the rituals and the religion of Egypt, and they were meshing it with their own b- religious beliefs. And of course, God was angry with that. And one one thing he intends to do is to help us to know what our purpose is as the people of God, and so we can live differently in this world. This is all through the scriptures, that God's people ought to be distinct in the way that we live. Would you agree to that? I hope you do, because if not, this message is going to be awfully rough for us, because God's calling us to that kind of life. And the gospel is so important that we must live with it appropriately, uh, because it's such a great gift. But but also, we want to avoid unnecessary criticism as Christians, and uh, the gospel is to be known, is to be shown attractive by how we live, and in no way should we cast a shadow over it. We need to represent the gospel well. I remember somebody said, uh, I can't remember exactly which of the um, church leaders this was, but he said that uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Okay, I think in our day, we need to use a little more words. <laughs> we need to talk about it a little more. But uh, it's important also that we live the gospel out and that we show what the gospel's like. And this is Paul's concern as he's, he's speaking to Titus. I don't know if you remember, but Titus is the pastor of a church on the island of Crete. And uh, Paul has some interesting things to say about Cretans. In fact, if you ever heard somebody called a Cretan, you know that usually that's not a good thing. Uh, Cretans are always liars and they're lazy, I think is something along the lines of what Paul says. And so whatever the, um, the culture was like, the church needed to fit in that culture in a way that distinguished itself. And so he's writing to Titus. Paul is not the pastor of the church on Crete. Titus is the pastor, and Paul is writing to this younger pastor and telling him, here's how you need to speak to your people. Here's how you need to communicate uh, to the people so that they can live out the purposes of God in a culture that's contrary to it, okay? So we don't want to, as we we live this out, we don't want to in any way give reasons for people to reject Jesus. If they reject Jesus, they're rejecting him, and let it be because of them and not because of us. And you can see this as as Paul begins to deal with the house rules in chapter 2. He says a few things that kind of leads up to this. Let's read our passage, and then we'll think back about it. A little bit here. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. And so he, uh, Paul is calling them to the grace of God. 
He says, for the grace of God appeared to all. And the first word there is for. And when you see that word, you're, you're asking, what is this connected to? And he connects it back to a series of statements that were given to different groups within the church. There's older men, there's older women and younger women, and then there's young men. And then he addresses servants. And so in each of these, he says things, Paul has said things to Titus that he's to, to tell these people to follow these particular instructions. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, tell older men, he says a few things regarding this, but he says this one particular phrase, to be worthy of respect, worthy of respect. That's that they live in such a way that they're dignified amongst those that are around them. Then he says, uh, tell older women and younger women to live a certain way so that no one will malign the word of God. Respect, that they'll respect you, that they'll not uh, malign the word of God. Notice the instructions to younger men includes this, be an example, show integrity, speech that cannot be condemned. Do you see the connection between all these things, that they have respect, that they not cause uh, the word of God to be maligned, that they, not, uh, that they live in such a way that nobody can oppose uh, what they say, or that their speech cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you have nothing uh, bad to say about us. That's in verses 6 through 8. And then verses 9 through 10, the word to servants is that you're to obey your masters in everything, so that the teaching about God, our Savior, uh, is attractive. Do you see the connection here? This is the point that uh, we're trying to make, is that Paul is is going to give some instructions to Titus. Titus is to pass these on to the church. And the overall concern in this particular portion of the passage is that uh, already the gospel is confrontational. Do you know that? If you don't know that, we need to know that. What this is, is we have kingdoms in conflict. We have the kingdom of God in the conflict with the kingdom of men. And uh, they are at war with one another. And everybody who comes to Christ has to relinquish one kingdom and step into another. Okay? The kingdom of self has to die. If anyone would gain their life, they have to lose it. This is the gospel. And so there's a sense in which we, we abdicate our own throne and we step into the kingdom of God and let God be king. Okay? So already there's a conflict. Already the rule of self does not like the kingdom of God. Okay? Anybody found that to be true at a practical level? Don't raise your hand, but just wink at me and let me know you see that to be true, that sometimes when you try to follow God, you find that it's offensive to flesh. The flesh doesn't like it, and sometimes culture doesn't like it. Culture is contrary to the gospel, and uh, you find that the devil doesn't like it. Like, you try to live for God, and you feel like you're under attack. Anybody uh, found that to be the case? The devil doesn't necessarily need to attack you so much when you're already on the road to perdition. But when you're on the road to glory, he wants to get you off that road. And so he'll use every means, intimidation, uh, attack tactics, fear tactics, every kind of way to get us off of that. And so there's already reason for the gospel to be a difficult pill for some to swallow because it means death to self is what it means. Okay, Are you with me on that? Because that's very fundamental to this message is that it means we have to die to self. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. Okay? Uh, in another place, he talks about how he has to beat his body and make it his slave. In other words, I'm going to not let flesh be in control. God is going to be in control, even if it's painful. 
Okay? He's using that metaphorically. I don't think he had to punch himself or anything like that. That's weird. Uh, but what he had to do is he had to bring his body into alignment with the will of God. And uh, that can have several applications to it. We see Jesus saying that we have to die to ourselves in order to live to God. If anyone would save their lives, they'll lose it. But if anyone loses their life for my sake, that doesn't mean necessarily dying a martyr's death. That means dying to self so that God can live. If you do that, you'll save your life. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? When we cling to it, we lose it. When we let God have it, we get life. It's, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's true. I'm saying all that to say that is already confrontational to flesh. Okay, So we don't need to be adding anything to it. We don't need to add any more reasons for people not to to want to follow Jesus. I'm saying that. The gospel is confrontation, but it's also very beautiful and attractive. You understand that it's free grace. When we really understand what it's about, it's free grace offered to all, though we don't deserve it. It's a beautiful thing. It's God who is the rightful king and Lord facing off against one-time enemy and saying to the enemy, if you'll only surrender, I'll be gracious to you and let you live. And not only let you live, but you'll live better than you did before. This is what God is doing in the gospel. He's offering us something that's beautiful and attractive, but it takes an initial hard, it makes an initial hard call uh, for all of us. And so when he says here, uh, for grace is uh, made known or revealed to all, he's going back to the idea that one thing we need to understand in our purpose as, as living out Christians is that we're in no way to make the gospel less attractive. We're to live it out in a way that's attractive. That has a lot of implications we can't get into. But he said that so that we would understand what this is all about. So let's look at verse 11 here. And uh, I, my hope today is for us to open up the Word of God to see what it says to us so that we can understand it and live it out. Are you with me on that? I hope that's your goal. When you come to listen to sermons, you're not here to be entertained. We're here to get into the Word and to hear it. Are you with me? Okay, if you're not, please get with us on that. That's what it's about. Okay, Verse 11, it says here, uh, once again, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Okay, The beautiful fact is that the gospel is freely offered to all people. It's wonderful. This goes beyond uh, the, the old um, Jewish way of thinking that we are God's particular people, and nobody else gets in because we're natural-born Israelites. Paul saying this, Jesus uh, expressing similar things, uh, this is an invitation to all people to come. And aren't you glad for that? Like, there's nothing in the world that I could think of that would bring us all into the same room from all of our origins to where we are right now, except that the gospel has made an impact on our lives. Folks, we're here from all over the world in this place, and we're here because of Jesus. And it's beautiful. It really is. And the reason that we're a people at all is because God has done something powerful. But this grace is so important that it gets mistaken uh, as its sole function is being uh, for just salvation alone. It's such an important part of salvation that it gets mistaken for that. It says, this grace has appeared in verse 12, and it teaches us, what's the it there? The it is the grace of God, teaches us 
to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Okay, so grace is more than just the invitation to come receive salvation. Do you you understand that it's not just God saying, you sin, but I'm going to show you favor anyway. Okay. It's, it's, that's a huge part of what grace is about, but sometimes we limit it by its, what we think of as its chief function, but it's much more than that. I'd like you to consider some things in chapter two of Ephesians. It says, by grace, you're saved. Thank God we're saved by grace. He doesn't give us what our sins deserve. And in fact, he gives us what we don't deserve. Thank God. Okay. Grace, grace does that. Romans five, two talks about the grace in which you stand. Not just stood at one time or knelt by an altar in grace, but it's the grace by which we presently at this moment stand in God. We need grace for that. Come on, not true? It's not just what happened uh, several years ago, 1976, when we came to a particular altar and knelt there. Grace is what we stand in to live for God daily. We need to hold on to that, okay? And then it's gr- by grace that we minister Listen, you thought about this? You, sometimes you think our giftings are not enough. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't. So if you feel that way, you're with everybody else who ever lived, including the Apostle Paul. Maybe Jesus is the only exception to this rule. And yet he ministered even in weakness, didn't he? So think about this. Uh, Paul talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by God's grace, I am what I am. And he goes on to talk about how he's an apostle, and it's by the grace of God. And in the chapter preceding that, we hear about supernatural giftings. Guess what those are? They're charismata. They're grace gifts. That's what that word means. We don't, we don't, get, uh, we don't get the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy, or we don't get to be used in those gifts because we're deserving we get to be used in those because God graciously uses those through us. Amen. So it's not uh, like I got to get real spiritual and, and get the big gifts. No, this is God pouring out grace gifts through us. We minister by grace, and by grace, you persist. Now, what this means is that in the Christian life, there are hard times that, that come against us and knock us. Okay? They want to push us off course. In one particular uh, really interesting scenario in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul says, uh, I have this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me. You feel like there's a demonic background to all of this, something that's attacking him, not possession. He's not possessed by the devil or by an evil spirit, but he's being attacked and it's persistent and it's demonic. Okay, And he says to the Lord, will you take this away? Three times he pleaded, and three times the Lord said to him, what? My grace is sufficient for you. Grace. Are you with me? So the grace is going to help him stand against the onslaught of the enemy. Okay. So I want you to know, great. I'm trying to make this point that the word grace includes much more than just entering the kingdom. It's how we walk and live in the kingdom. Okay. And part of that is that the grace teaches us. There is no Christian life without grace in every aspect. We need God's help. Grace is important for salvation, but also for sanctification. Do you know the word sanctification? Somebody who knows it, tell us what sanctification means. Is it one of those big words? What is it? 
to be made holy, to be made holy. God wants to make us holy, doesn't he? And so we have this big word. We don't use that out in culture anywhere. We don't use it at the grocery store, and we're not using it usually when we're at our jobs. But when we come to church, we need to know that what God wants to do is he wants to holify us. He wants to make us holy. He wants to sanctify us and make us like saints. If you need a um, kind of a mnemonic device for this, he's sanctifying us. Do you get that? Saint. He's making us into saints. Okay, this isn't people who've been dead for so many years and performed a miracle or something. Uh, this is every person who's entered into relationship with Christ is called a saint. And what he does is he calls us holy. This is, this is how this works, is he positionally places us in a place of holiness when we come to Christ. We become holy, or we're declared holy at that moment, positionally. But then we start to live up to that, and we practically become holy in time. So he makes us holy, and it, it's a process. So don't get mad if you're not there and haven't arrived yet. God is sanctifying you through and through. It sometimes is not pleasant, but he's doing this. And the Bible is telling us here that grace has a part in that sanctification process of that, that him making us holy is coming because of grace. Look at this. By grace, it teaches us. It teaches us. Okay, and, and uh, it says it teaches us to say no it teaches us to live this other way. So what I would, the way I would divide this is, is grace teaches us how not to live, and it also teaches us how to live. Okay, are you with me on that? That there's some do nots, and then there's some do's. And let's not make our Christian lives all about the do nots. Okay, there's so much more that we're to be about than we're, we're against. What we're against is because of what we're for. What we're for is the preceding calling. We're for God, we're for holiness, we're for righteousness, we're for good living. And because of that, there's certain behaviors and attitudes that we shun. Okay, But that's a byproduct of us owning the identity God's given us. Folks, I wish I could emphasize how important this is. I wish I could, because this is really, really important. Grace teaches us. Zach didn't know this this morning because he got the list before even I was done um, preparing this message, but we sang uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Do you remember? And there's a verse in there, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, and seal it. Seal it for thy court above. Okay, Grace calls us in a Christian living. He didn't know that we were going to be talking about this. And when I started to cry a little bit because I was thinking, that's exactly what we're talking about. And this is the orchestration of the Holy Spirit telling us that we're on, on topic today. He wants us to know that it's grace that will help constrain us in the way that we shouldn't live and help to pr- propel us into the way that we should live. It's God's grace. So if you're living your Christian life all on your own power, we may not be tapping into all that he's offered us in terms of of his grace. It tells us here that it teaches us, and, and there's some debate about what this word means. Sometimes this word uh, is interpreted, and Paul uses it two ways uh, as discipline. That's to be, um, to be trained by chastisement, okay? You know, like when you're a little kid and you get a spanking. Uh, 
And your parents say, this is not how we behave. And I'm going to correct your attitude, and I'm going to do it through your bottom. Right? <laughs> Sorry, that was a funny way to think of that. But um, Then uh, the other way that this is used is just simply of teaching that instruction comes. And we learn how to live in a particular way. But it tells us this is the purpose. This is the purpose. It teaches us that um, grace's purpose is to form proper habits or behaviors to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices. So I think I've not been a parent, but I remember how my parents dealt with me. And I think the focus of this was we're disciplining you now. We're teaching you these things and saying them over and over again until you're nauseated. And we're spanking you when it's necessary or grounding you from TV or whatever it was. There was all kinds of things they used. They didn't just use one method. We're doing this because not because we just are annoyed by your behavior, but someday we want you to be a well-adjusted adult who can live in the world with other people and can get along. Hopefully they've succeeded in that. But that was the purpose in that, was it had a long vision. And grace has a long vision. It doesn't leave us just where we are. It says to us we need to see change take place because God wants to use you for a purpose in this world. And he can't do that when you're still living in the old ways. He needs to purify you. He needs to sanctify you. And he's going to give his grace to teach us. And this teaching is going to form habits Habits of thinking and habits of behavior, okay? I hope that you think differently now than you did a year ago because of God's grace working in you. I hope that you think differently now in a better way, in a more godly way, in a more informed biblical way than you, do t- than you did 10 years ago. I hope so. That's something that maybe you and the Holy Spirit need to have a talk about. Am I growing in God? So it teaches us some things here. And, that, and by the way, here's an interesting thought. This word for the grace teaches us, the word for teach here is uh, the word we get pedagogue from. And it's used, the noun form of this is used in Galatians 3, verse 24 through 25, when it says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, the headmaster, you know, the, the one that's teaching, the one that is shaping and forming us until we come to Christ. In the past... The law did that. Here's the interesting thing, is now that we're in Christ, it's not the law that does that. It's grace that does that. Grace is sitting as our schoolmaster to teach us how not to live and how to live. What an interesting um, contrast that's there. It teaches us how not to live. It teaches us to say no. Part of the Christian life, I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll know, is denial. Self-denial, denial of sin, denial of perhaps our fallen tendencies, okay? Um, denial of the world, the flesh, and the devil having its control over us. There's a denial, and so it tells us that we have freedom to say no. It teaches us to say no. Maybe your translation uh, has there, uh, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and uh, than how we're to live. But what it's saying is here, it teaches us to say no. This is to deny consent or to refuse, even to protest, sometimes to revolt. Okay, This is a big word when it's saying it teaches us to say no. This isn't like, no, thank you. I'll not have this on a temporary basis. 
This is like revolt against something. So I want you to think about it this way. If you offered me a piece of chocolate right now, and uh, if I had enough moral strength to say, no, I'm preaching, but maybe later, um, you would say, okay, he just doesn't want one right now. But later on, because I know his nature, he's going to want chocolate. But if I say something like, I renounce chocolate, then you see there's a whole new level that's happened there, isn't it? Like, he's never having chocolate again. By the way, don't renounce chocolate. Let those words be stricken from the record. Uh, But this is the kind of force with which this, uh, this word say no comes, is that it's to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That you're going to live in a, in a uh, state of constant no against those things. Now, that doesn't mean that there won't come times where maybe you, uh, you fail the test and you give in to temptation. If you've done that, there's grace for that. But what this is saying is that the disposition of our life is a revolt or a renunciation of, of worldly passions and ungodliness. Are you with me? Does that make sense? That we're not just saying no, like the grace of God comes and it helps us to just say no once. It does, but it's more of a, his grace is helping us to have a disposition of no towards those things in the world that would take us away from God. And we need to have that and we need to develop that. And sometimes that develops over time in a stronger way as we walk with God. And we also have to keep our thumb on that pulse because there are times that we can start to let ourselves slip a little bit and adopt worldly attitudes and customs and and let ourselves off the hook and go into behaviors and and thinking that is contrary to God's will. And so we have to keep our thumb on that because God's grace wants to teach us to have a disposition, a dispositional no to ungodliness and worldly lust. So it's teaching us how not to live. There's a couple statements on this that I thought might be helpful. Um... So uh, Chrysostom, who was an early preacher in the church, he said, see, here's the foundation of all virtue. He has not said that we are to be avoiding ungodliness, but denying. Denying implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred, the greatest aversion. It's not just a no. This is a denial of those kinds of things. So he mentions, first of all, ungodliness. And uh, what's interesting about this particular word, ungodliness, is it's a, it comes with a, a negative. You know how some of our words have a negative? Like you say religious, but if you say irreligious, you're making a statement, aren't you? You're saying not religious or anti-religious even. Are you with me? Or um, if you say Christ, we have one picture. And if you say antichrist, you have another picture. Right? So you have this prefix on a word, and it changes things. And so what this word ungodliness means literally is it has the prefix of not, which is the A, and the suffix or the, the main root portion of the word is worship. It means to not worship. So when we deny ungodliness, we're denying the kind of lifestyle that doesn't worship God, that doesn't put God in his proper place. It mentions worldly passions here, and uh, this... Uh, word worldly often brings to mind, at least to me, uh, preaching that has to do with uh, things which were not eternal or external, like uh, clothing and hairstyles. Anybody remember the days when we preached the clothesline and everything was sin and you didn't dare wear Jezebel red because 
you're inviting the enemy's work in your life if you do things like that. As if that color doesn't belong to God too, right? Do you know that all the colors belong to God? I don't know how we got so ridiculous in some ways, but uh, we often preach the externals. And while our clothing uh, or our approach to just putting ourselves out there, um, while that can sometimes display worldly attitudes, the real focus of worldliness is internal. In Scripture, worldliness has to do with attitudes, has less to do with what's going on, on the outside and more to do with how we think. Okay, And so if you have a worldly, you can be very worldly and dress like, well, dress like a really good Christian and really be worldly on the inside. So given to worldly passions, which are, he doesn't really define here in a deep way. He just, he just talks about things that are, uh, are desires that are on the inside that the world goes after. And we can imagine what some of those are, one of the drivers in our culture. And if you listen to anything Freud says, he thinks this is the driver for everything, is sex and sensuality. That to, to put that out there as the main focus and goal in life is idolatry. So that's one of them. That's an obvious one. But, you know, self-promotion. And I think one of the bigger lies is, is this, is that we have to express ourselves. I have to be me. Okay. Are you listening? Because I want to share my heart on this. I think the devil has robbed this generation by telling us we have to express ourselves. The goal of life is to express ourselves. It's not. The goal of life is to glorify God. It's not to put our name up there. It's to put his name up there. It's not to live for us. It's to live for him. It's a lie. And don't let us, and you'll hear it through television shows. You'll hear it through music. I got to be me, you know. I did it my way. Frank, if you want to go way back. Um, I got to be me, you know. I got to do it my way. And uh, more and more, the sexual revolution has taken on the tone that I've got to be me too. Not the me on the outside, the me that I think I am on the inside. And it's led to confusion all around. This starts with the idea that I have to express myself. And where this comes from, I was reading a book by uh, Daniel Borston called The Seekers. And he talks about how for the last 300 years, there's been this constant stream in philosophy to cast off any kind of external governance and declare individual freedom to be ourselves for 300 years. And he goes to the philosophers from Nietzsche uh, on back to Compton, others who have promoted this, and slowly, a little bit at a time, our biblical ethics and our culture have been undermined. And we're going back. It's the same lie that was told in a moment in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And won't you be much better off if you do it your way? And isn't he really trying to suppress who you really could be if you obey his command? He's trying to steal from you. Don't trust him. Okay, and what that has, what's happened is that lie has been perpetuated a little bit at a time for 300 years, and the culture has begun to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And we're in the thick of it. And you wonder, the, the issue that we're facing in our culture is not that people prefer some kind of alternative lifestyle. It's that there is a core battle. The core battle is this. It's me versus God. It's me versus God, and I'm going to get my way. And we've pushed him out in terms of science by saying we've all evolved, so there's no accountability to any creator. We've evolved spontaneously without the help of any deity. 
And so we've gotten him out through the science door, and we've gotten him out through the uh, f- philosophical door and the ethical door, and we, we haven't tied ourselves to any kind of foundational reason to believe anything outside of ourselves. But if you're a Christian, you believe that God has sent from heaven the instructions about how to live, and that we neglect those to our own peril. Come on, are you with me? If we neglect it, it's to our peril and the peril of our world. Well, I've gone to soapboxing here, so let's get back to our message. These two words um, that we mentioned here, ungodliness and worldly passions, they really describe our culture well. But he shows us how we are to live. Grace doesn't just say the no. We obviously want to say no to those things. The no uh, is important, but the yes is more important, I think. He tells us that it teaches us this grace. Look at verse 12 again. It teaches us to say no, and if you jump down, it'll say again. It teaches us to live. It teaches us to live in a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present world. Okay. Do you see that? Grace doesn't just teach us what not to do. It teaches us what to do. Okay. The counterpart to ungodliness is what? Godliness. That's the contrast. What's that mean? We live as if God is chief, if he's king, if he's head over all, if he's worthy of our worship, as if he deserves our constant attention. Even if on the sideline while we're doing our job, he deserves it. Okay? It's to live as if he matters. It's to take him seriously. That's what godliness is, is to take God seriously enough that we'll devote our lives to him. But I'm, I'll tell you sadly that there are Christians who go to church every week that they live with the sin of ungodliness. God is only a thought on the weekends, and even maybe not at that. They're thinking about other things when they come to church. Well, he wants us to live a certain way. First, he says uh, self-controlled. Self-controlled is to behave in a sensible manner. And this is one of those examples of how you can't just plop an English word in and it matches exactly what the Greek word is because there's a whole range of meanings here. But uh, I think what this has in mind um, is that it get, it, we see a person who is self-controlled as being in control of their faculties, they're clear in their thinking, they know their purpose, and it affects their behavior. And so because of their purpose, they don't do certain things. Okay, Right? Like um, soldiers, because they're a soldier, there are certain things they don't do. Okay, And because we're the people of God, there are certain things that we don't do. And we're self-controlled. Now, what's interesting about this self-controlled is it's the same word that's used in the Gospels when the legion got cast out of the man. Do you remember the people found him sitting there clothed and what? In his right mind. And it's the the very same word that's used here for self-control, to be in your right mind. Okay, We want to be in our right minds. Grace gives us that. Grace also... Uh, helps us to live upright. This means that we do the right thing. We live the right way, verse 12. Okay, upright uh, is right behavior. We're living not in a way that's just justified where God has declared us righteous, but we're also living with righteous, righteous actions as a result. You know what I mean? It's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to, because we've been forgiven, we now want to live right. Right? All right, and then he mentions uh, godliness, which we've, talked about to take God seriously, verse 12. And then the third thing here, or the fourth thing, excuse me, 
is in verse 13, and it kind of comes on as a um, participle that follows this previous verse. It says, waiting or looking uh, while we wait for the blessed hope. And so I want to suggest to you that how we're to live by grace is self-controlled, upright, godly, and finally, we're to live expectantly. Okay, do you know what we mean by that? That we're not just saying this is this world is all that we have, and we love it, and we don't want to leave it. Remember when you're a kid and you're like, Jesus, please don't come back yet. There's things in life that I want to experience. Uh, and what we're really saying is that we love this world, and we're not ready to leave it. But uh, there ought to be something in our heart that that jumps at the thought of Jesus coming back in a good way, you know? Like we're expecting, we live expectantly. Notice it says here, uh, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I forgot something, I want to mention this, that all of these things that grace helps us to do, not just not to do, but to do, comes in this present world. So many times as Christians, we think what we really need to do is we need to get out of the environment, we need to back up and get ourselves in a commune somewhere where we can't be touched by the world. And what this is saying to us is just like what Jesus prayed, uh, Father, uh, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep the world from them. In other words, keep the world out of their hearts. It's possible because of this verse that we can live self-controlled, upright, godly, expectant lives in this present age. Okay? The tide has not become so powerful that we are, like, reeling. God is not sweating because the culture has gone bad. He's not. He's not, con- he's, well, he's concerned. He's not sweating about it. He's not fearful about it. He's not wringing his hands wondering, oh, what are we going to do? And you shouldn't be either, and neither should I. What we need to do is we need to live firm our convictions, just like it says here, because grace has been given for that very thing, okay? And let's let the chips fall, and you're going you're gonna to save people if you'll live right and you'll talk about it. People will get saved, okay? So we're to live expectantly, looking for uh, the appearing of the glory of our great uh, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, okay? We're waiting for his appearing. This isn't being specific, like Paul is not um, necessarily adopting some end-time chart and specifically talking about rapture here or the, the final judgment or the coming of the new heavens, new earth. This is kind of a vague statement of Jesus is coming back, and we need to look forward to it, his coming, okay? So that's what this is about. And then I want to point this out, though we're, we're running out of time, but I think it's really important. We have here... And you might not have caught it, but we have here the clearest statement of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. You know what that means? This means this is a statement that says Jesus is God. We know he's not every person of the Trinity because John 1.1 1, 1 makes that clear that he was with God and he was God. Okay? So the Father and the Son are distinct in their personhood, but they're one as God. Okay? I don't want to try to unravel the mystery of the Trinity this morning, but I do want to point this out because there's been an accusation that there's no clear statement in the New Testament that Jesus is God. This is the clearest statement. Listen, we're waiting for the appearing of the glory of our, listen, great God and Savior. This is Granville's rule. 
And it tells us that if this is talking about great God as the Father and our Savior as Jesus, then there would be a definite article before the second noun, which would be the great God and the Savior. But it's not there in Greek, which means this is a construction that's intended to point out that Jesus is the great God. Okay? I need you to know that because when the guys come knocking on the door and they have a different version of this, you take them to this verse, and you can point out Granville's rule. And if you want to know more about that, you can look that up later for uh, those who want to get a little bit nerdy on it. But notice it talks about purpose here, and we've got to fly through this. I've got three points to make. Um, grace helps us to live out on purpose, and to live on purpose, to live out purpose in our lives. So I'd like you to notice here in verse 14, it says, The great God and Savior Jesus Christ, we're waiting for his appearing. And then it says something about what he's done, who gave himself for us. He gave himself for us. He gave himself to redeem us. And I want you to know that it goes on to say here to redeem us. Redeem is a, um, a packed word that means that he purchased us back from slavery. Okay, This is the a, a reminiscent of what God did for Israel. He redeemed them from slavery, and he brought them out, and he made a people of his very own. They came out to worship him, to live distinct from the world around them. This is what he's done for us. He gave himself to redeem us. You are valuable if for no other reason than Jesus paid a high price for you. Okay, And more than that, we're valued doubly because he created us in his image. There's value in that. And there's also value in the fact that after we marred the image, he still redeemed us. Okay. He redeemed us. So I want you to know you have purpose today because, because he's redeemed us. So the first thing that grace reminds us is and it's based that we have purpose based on redemption. We need to ask the question, what were we redeemed from? Look at the verse 14 again. He redeemed us from all wickedness. Okay? He redeemed us from wickedness. Thank God for that. You're not, you're not bound to have to sin. Sometimes we think that we just have to continue in sin. We, the likelihood that we'll sin again is pretty high. But that's different from saying that we have to sin. We're bound by this behavior. We're not. He redeemed us from all wickedness. We're not bound by it. We're freed. Redeemed means that he purchased our freedom from all wickedness. And the actual Greek word here is anomia, which is a Without law, we lived without law. He redeemed us from that kind of lifestyle and brought us in that we might live for him. Okay, So we have purpose. And one of the purposes is not to waste our life in wickedness. We have to understand that if he redeemed us from that, that means our purpose has to be dis distinct from that. We're not here to live for ourselves, to live for debauchery, to live for sinful pleasure, to live for pursuing our own passions. Sometimes worldliness is kind of tamed down to think that if I achieve the American dream, that's okay. You're not here to achieve the American dream. You're here to live for God. And if he wants to bless you in certain ways, great. But the American dream is not our goal as Christians. Come on, let's buy that wholeheartedly, that we're here to serve God. And for thy pleasure, they were created. God says we were created for his pleasure, not so that we could live out some kind of 21st century American dream. Forget that. God will bless you. We have a kingdom that's going to be far better than what this kingdom offers us. 
and that awaits us with Jesus, the coming of Jesus. So we anticipate that. Second, we live out on purpose. It's based on relationship. There's so much here, but we've got to go quick. Notice who we were redeemed to or who we were redeemed for. This is uh, in verse 14 once again. It says, He redeemed us from all wickedness, and He purified for Himself a people. Who are the people for? For Himself. Who's the Himself? God, Jesus in particular here. He redeemed us or He purified us for Himself. We're a people called to relationship with Him. We're related to Him by His redemption and His washing. He purified us for Himself, a people for His own possession. And that means that, uh, that we are a people that are identified with him, that belong to him. And that tells us something about what our purpose is. Our purpose isn't live for ourselves, it's to live for him. Okay? And there's, there's so much more to that, but he's loved us, he's valued us, he's brought us into relationship with himself, and uh, he's given us purpose based upon who he is. The third thing I'd like to mention here is that as we live out this purpose in verse 14, grace reminds us uh, who we are, that we have purpose based on right living, what you are chosen to do. Notice uh, verse 14 again says to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good, eager to do what's good. So I, I think here of that grace phrase in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works. No one can boast. You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God preordained or foreordained for you to do. He saved us not by works, but for works. Are you with me? And here it's telling us that he's redeemed us and purified us so that we could do good works. He doesn't tell us what the good works are, but we know that good has to be useful. It has to be in alignment with his character. It can't be in agreement with wickedness and ungodliness. So those have to go out the window. But I, I just love how this isn't limited, that there's so many options when it comes to the good works that we can do. Are you with me? But it has to be related to God. It has to be for the good. It has to be in alignment with his revealed will. But there's great freedom in doing that. If today you go through the drive-thru and you want to pay for the car behind you, that's great. Okay? Let it be a good work unto the Lord. If you want to reach out to somebody and help them out when you're not feeling like it, do a good work for the, for the Lord. If you want to help somebody who's in a time of need, that's a great work to the Lord. If you want to share the gospel with somebody, that's a good work, even if it's not well-received. You understand what I mean? Living out your dutiful responsibilities, those are good works. If you're a father, to be a good parent to your children, they're good works. We're called to good works. It doesn't specify what those good works are but we're called to do them and not to do bad works because the contrary to this is he's redeemed us from wickedness, but he's redeemed us to good works. Good, You see that? Okay, good. Finally here, who are you as a Christian? Let me quickly go through this. Who are you and what can you do? And this is a summary of the passage we've looked at. You are a people and you're not alone. You can say no to temptation. You can live God-centered lives. You can be self-controlled. You can be upright. You can take God seriously. You are redeemed from all wickedness. You are purified by Christ. You are God's own possession. Your purpose to do good 
you're free to dif- live differently from the present age that we live in, and you can represent the gospel well and not bring reproach upon God's name. That's all here. If we hear this today and we respond, we're going to live the way God wants us to. We're going to live a way that's right, better than the other way we used to live, better than the lives of others. Uh, it's not a competition, but I'm telling you, if you'll live right, and I've seen it in my own family, that my parents, they chose to live with God at the center, and it made a difference. And some of their siblings did not choose that, and their lives were a mess. It makes all the difference in the world. Live the way that challenges, you can live the way that challenges the world, you can live the way that strengthens the church. But if we don't hear this or we don't respond to the word of God today, we're going to miss our purpose and we're, we're going to make it about other things, like how much money we can make and how good of a time we can have. You know, um, as Christians, I want to challenge us not to say, you know, the most important thing is that we all had fun. Fun is not the most important thing in life. It's not. And you've testified to that by the fact that you're here today listening to this message for this long. It's not just about how much fun we can have. It's about living with purpose and being fulfilled at the end of the day, knowing that you've done what was right by God and looking forward to the well done, good and faithful servant. We're going to have lots of fun in heaven. And we're going to have fun here too. But that's not the main point. And uh, if we don't hear this message, we'll be absorbed by culture. We'll lie about who God is by our lives, saying that behavior he calls wrong is right. And we're going to become irrelevant. You know, there's been studies done on salvation. They did this in the United Methodist Church, and they've done this in other churches. A great example of this is uh, Jenkins, Philip Jenkins' book, The Next Christendom. And he's a sociologist at Penn State University, and he said that the churches that are growing around the world are churches that stand out as distinct, hold tightly to the Bible, and are open to the power of the Holy Spirit, that are looking forward to the coming of Jesus. Those are the churches that stand against all kinds of opposition. The churches that compromise, the churches that want to embrace culture and its ways, those churches lose their relevance and they die out. Because why does the church, the world need an echo of their own voice? They don't. They need somebody to stand over against and to call to them, come and find life. Come and be saved. But too often we think the way to relate is to compromise, and it's not. There's other ways that we can connect. Jesus was able to connect and still maintain distinction. God will find somebody else. He always preserves a remnant, but I want to be involved, don't you? The church which thrives is the church that's not compromising. So let's stand firm for what God says is right. Hey, thanks for your gracious attention. Why don't we stand today? Let's respond to the Lord. I know we've we've dug deep here, and maybe uh, the forest has gotten lost for the trees. So let's think about this. God has given us grace so we could live the right way, so that we'll not be absorbed by our culture, the present world. That's what Paul calls it, so that we can stand out as distinct in Him and live out our purpose as God's people. That's what grace does for us. It gives us purpose, and it helps us to know how we ought to live. If we don't know what the purpose is of something, we'll misuse it. And that's what people are doing every day in this world is they don't know why they're here. 
They don't know why they exist. And so they live for themselves. They invent their own reasons, and it's created a lot of confusion. We need Christians now more than ever that know this is our purpose. This is why we live. This is why we exist and embrace it. Help us, Lord, we pray, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Help us to be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this world, anticipating your coming. I pray, Lord, if we've let the temptations or the passions of, uh, that the world goes after determine our course, I pray that you help us to repent of that and to turn to you and realize that you purify us from that so that we can really live the good lives you've called us to. It's going to look peculiar. It's going to be different. And certainly, Lord, we know there are nice people out there that don't know you, but nice isn't the same as good. And Lord, we want to be good. We want to be good. We want to be those who do what's good and live out what's good because of your calling. So help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. I thought the the altar this morning, for the altar this morning, if you'd like to make an altar here at the steps or at your seat, the first area is to um, ask yourself, what kingdom do you serve? Are you serving the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? If you haven't determined that yet today, if you're realizing God's call to you is to lay down, because... Self will not win. Self will be drowned out. Self will be lost. But God will win, and all who are surrendered to him are on the winning side. And here's the other thing that we need to say again and again. You don't know your true self until you know your true self in God. That you will not know the true you until you know the saved you, the redeemed you, the the you that has that God part of you missing. And once he comes in, he begins to fill that hole and to transform who you are into who you are meant to be. So could I ask you today, if you're fighting that battle, could you? Could I ask you to lay down your arms and surrender to him and let God be God and let his kingdom win in your life? Let grace begin to seep in and and teach you how it is to, that we're, we're to live and what we're to say no to and what we're to say yes to. I challenge you to do that. You can just simply make a decision and say, Lord, I've been living for myself. Be merciful to me. Because of what Christ has done, I want your forgiveness and I want to live for you. God's gracious and he'll help you. Maybe you're saying, I've been living the Christian life, but I've been really living the Christian life. I've been compromising. I've not been saying no where I should say no. I've not been saying yes where I should say yes. My alignment is off. I've been going after other things. God, would you be gracious to me and reset my alignment to follow after you, to learn where the boundaries are, and to live in a way that is full of purpose and pleases you. And God loves to answer prayers like that because it's right in alignment with his will. We know that if we ask anything according to his will, he'll do it. That's according to God's will. Today, if you're saying, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, set me on the right course, he'll help you to do that. Let me bless you, and then we'll be dismissed. Amen. May God bless you in the name of Jesus to show you every aspect of his grace and every area of need, and that you might thrive in him, that you might not be um, 
hemmed in by culture, but that you might live out loud the gospel of Jesus with his help. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.